Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. For those of you who I didn't have a chance to meet, my name is Scott. I'm part of our team here. It's so, uh, so great to be together during this season of Christmas and looking forward to again being together tomorrow. I uh, hope you can join us for that. Um, many of you know that I generally spend my weekends here uh, teaching and working with our volunteers on the east side, but last week I got the chance to be at our Kensington Parish, getting to see some familiar faces, getting to remind them that they are part of a group of parishes here in this city, which was a lot of fun for me, and I got to connect, make some connections again, which was a blessing. We're just a couple of weeks now from celebrating one year since our launch of this community in England, which is really exciting. And we have some special things planned for January the 6th. Birthday cake for everybody, I think, is what it's going to happen as we start 2019 together. And as we're getting going this morning, just another quick plug. Uh, about 10 days ago, we released our 2018 donor report. Uh, you can get a link to that by heading over to commons.church if you didn't already receive it in your inbox. Um, this report is part of our approach as a community to being transparent about the things that we do with your resources. And it's also an invitation to all of us to participate in how we end a year and then look forward to 2019 together. And as part of that, I just want to remind you about the fact that we are ending a year and then looking into all of the newness that our city offers to us in each and every passing year. And if you're interested in doing a year-end donation, you can do so. We're in, we have a service here next Sunday on the 30th, but you can give any time on our website up until the midnight on the 31st on New Year's. Imagine that. And we deeply appreciate the support that you offer year-round and also in these special times because, yes, our Advent campaign continues. We've heard a little bit more about that today. But we also receive a significant amount of our uh, yearly budget during December, and we are grateful for the ways in which that comes together because there is so much to celebrate here at Commons. Our continued growth as a community, the many ways in which new people are experiencing the story of Jesus for the first time, and then there's the many ways that our efforts as a community are extending beyond the four walls of each parish into our city and then into the world beyond. And the truth is that there's so much ahead for us in parish life. We're so grateful for the ways that people have begun to connect here in Inglewood, joining groups, hosting parties, serving together. But then we're also looking ahead to the future and to the work of becoming even more thoughtful and honest. To become more authentic and dedicated to spiritual life. And then the work of being more committed to discovering the ways in which being curious about Jesus actually changes us and then changes the world. Because this dream of ours to become a group of parishes in the core of Calgary, it's comprised, I don't know if you know this, it's comprised in the beautiful ways that you live in the ways that you serve people as you pass them at work or at play or at study, how you invest in this local parish, and then how you're joining with the big group of us as we work for the kind of world that Jesus talked so much about, where life and renewal and the hope, these things are best found in the relationships and in the homes and in the neighborhoods that we find ourselves in. So thank you for the ways that you help move us forward together, including in these benevolence initiatives that we've told you a little bit already about today. 
Now, as we're getting going, we are actually in our final step on our Advent journey today. And I hope that some of you are feeling grounded in this season of getting ready. See, I actually didn't grow up knowing what Advent was. It wasn't until my early 20s. We were living in Toronto at the time, and I sort of discovered some of what these four weeks could bring to my life. Because I'd had this recurring experience around Christmas, see, with the semester ending and having to go to the mall. If you guys know where the mall is, that's where the Apple store is. I don't know. Maybe some of you have been trapped there over the last couple of days. Good. That's good. The point is that in this season with everything shifting and then having to travel to go see family, I'd often wake up on December 26th or 27th and I'd feel like I'd miss something. Something about the beauty and the mystery, really Christmas's essence, it felt like I just sort of passed it on the highway and it was going the other direction. And I didn't like that feeling. I didn't like that discontent. And something, or somewhere along the way, I actually discovered some of the themes of Advent and Advent practice. And as part of my own spiritual growth, I began to cultivate the work of getting my head and my soul warmed up to the ideas that Christmas brings to bear on the world. And over time, these practices have changed my life, let's be honest, because at our house, we actually decorate in early November, because some years, I actually feel like I need an Advent for my Advent, which I get, it's not very liturgical, but it works for me. And over time, the changes of features and scenery in our everyday space, in our home, it's become less about the festivity for me. And it's become more of a gentle reminder to wake up to the readying of Advent and then to do it on purpose, where it's not just the lights and the greenery and the cheap chocolate laying everywhere, it's the choice to find quiet moments and to look for where hunger and longing are rampant in our world, to think about the places where power is being used and then fought over, and then to put the story of Jesus in the light of such things. Because that's what the story needs sometimes. It needs to be rescued from the hands of the crooners and the sentimentalists where tranquility just rules and Jesus isn't even crying in the manger. And then we, what we do is we set the story in an obscure backyard shed in an overcrowded village on the backside of the Roman Empire. And it's just another baby being born into poverty. There's nothing to see there until we zoom out a little bit. And then this story starts to catch us in unexpected ways where this particular baby's story quite notably connects with the words that were shared about him hundreds of years before. And like a couple of weeks ago, we reflected on the story of Mary's womb, how it opened to God. We realized that that story is actually rooted in the Hebrew stories much earlier about barren wombs and the longing hearts that carried them. And then we also find that the story of this mystery child, it finds its parallels in the songs of women like Hannah, who longed for a world made right where justice could be found and felt and discovered with our hands. And these things are so ancient, but they're so present to us now, I think. Those parts of our story that maybe haven't yet yielded the fruitfulness that we hoped they would, maybe in our relationships or our work, or maybe even for some of us here today, it's our faith. And it's those places in our lives where we feel constrained and we feel all bound up and restricted, maybe in a loss that we've suffered, 
or a confusion that we carry or helplessness that we feel over the fact that children are starving and economies are failing and the powerful are just tweeting about it. See, Advent comes to us there and it normalizes these things by placing them in the lives of characters that we can recognize in the story. Which is why last week we talked about Jesus heading back to his home synagogue and that story is so profound because first of all, it's such a normal moment. But then secondly, it's profound because of the story Jesus tells about himself there. How he says as he reads from the great prophet Isaiah, in effect, see, you've known this story about God as rescuer and as deliverer. Well, guess what? That story's more true now today as I stand in front of you than it's ever been before. In fact, it's always been true. Anytime the world becomes more beautiful and more equitable. And in hearing these words, Jesus' audience was reminded to hope, which is part of what Advent is for us, where again we pick up hope, fragile as it might be, because to do so is such a holy practice with roots as deep and as strong as these ancient stories where we learn year by year to ready ourselves for the surprising ways that grace can turn even our most daunting challenges. And we choose to work and we choose to give and we choose to serve so that this hope can be seen by others. Now, today we're actually gonna take a look at a little bit more of a traditional Advent text, this story from Jesus' infancy. But before we do, would you join me just in a quick moment in prayer to center ourselves? Join me now. Oh, Advent God, divine parent and source, drawing near to us in Christ and holding us now, oh, gracious spirit. Our hearts are restless until they find their place in you that place where we are aware of your coming to us. And so we pray that you would give us open hearts like Mary to receive you. And that you would give us open eyes like the wise men who traveled to search for you. And give us open hands like Joseph to hold you, wriggling hope fragile as you were. And where our world roars and groans in search of peace and our hearts a little bit too, we pray that you'd give us grace to make room for you. We ask, come Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, we're going to jump straight into the story, Matthew chapter 2. But as we do, I want to bring us up to speed because some things have happened right before this and most notably the fact that Jesus has been born. Just think about the shepherds and barnyard smells, all that kind of stuff. And then we get these mysterious wise men showing up in the text. And they've come to Jerusalem and they're looking for a new king that's been born apparently. They want to honor this king. And they have a run-in with this puppet ruler named Herod, who quite understandably is a little bit nervous and paranoid about people showing up thinking there's supposed to be another king other than him. And anyway, what we see is that these wise men finally make their way to Nazareth, where they worship the toddler Christ, who's about two years old at the time. And the text tells us this, that when they had gone, that's the magi, the wise men, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up. He said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you for Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. 
So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And I want to pause here just to make a quick reading note, and it's that I think that it's important to read a thick layer of suspense into this story, if you didn't already as we were going through it. And maybe this is because I've watched my share of mindless action films, which makes it easy for me then to hear this story, imagining Joseph getting a phone call in the middle of the night, sort of like, hello, who is this? And the angel probably sounds a little bit like Liam Neeson, saying, get up, you know, and you got to get on with things. And what this reminds us of, though, also, is some of the everyday things in our lives, or it does for me. And I thought specifically of some of the videos I saw of parents in the aftermath of Syrian bombings. Or one of the most poignant pictures for me was in in, uh, 2013, a a hurricane or a typhoon went through the Philippines. And I remember watching this video of a father carrying three children trying to cross this raging river, trying to get his children to safety. And that's some of what we need to see in this text because there's urgency in the Greek here that tells us that Joseph gets up and acts with urgency. They hit the road in the middle of the night and they're running for the border trying not to be seen. And what happens when we read that kind of intensity with this story is that all of our emotions and experience in human life, these things find their place in the text. Which means then that the story can disrupt us with its intensity, as we do it the honor of letting it be human, to think about how nerve-wracking this nighttime run in the dark must have been. And when we do this, we make room for good theology, where the incarnation isn't some abstract idea, but instead it's this clear picture of the costs associated with being human. Costs that God does not sidestep in Jesus, because you and I and so many people in our world can't sidestep them either. And we're gonna come back to this, so if you can just put it to the side for a moment, because we actually need to look a little closer at what the writer of this gospel is doing in the story. So you heard the text where it says that Joseph took his family to Egypt to escape the threat of a murderous king. And then how the author sees this part of Jesus' story as fulfilling these words from an ancient Hebrew prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. And here, Matthew's actually lifting a verse from the Hebrew prophet Hosea. And there's a couple things I want you to note about this. First of all, it's widely believed by scholars that Matthew is actually written and collected as a document about 35 years after Jesus' death and resurrection after the destruction of the temple of the Jews in Jerusalem, which happened in about 70 CE. And there's a bunch of reasons that scholars think this about this text, and one of them is the fact that Matthew seems to put Jesus at odds with the traditions and the leaders of Judaism a lot. Jesus is a disturber in lots of the stories, and scholars feel that depicting Jesus this way This is an indicator of how after the temple's destruction in Jerusalem, there was lots of tension and unsettledness within Judaism at the time, which led early followers of Jesus as they were telling stories about Jesus and then collecting those stories. They made arguments about Jesus' authenticity by pointing to the Hebrew Bible. They were arguing from scripture to legitimize their claim that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. I mean, they're just citing their sources. This is good work, right? So 
This is why Matthew's throwing in these references to establish his claims about Jesus. Basically, what he's saying is, see, Jesus went down to Egypt when he was a child. You guys remember that story? And hey, look over here. There's this old prophet in the Hebrew tradition that said that one day God would bring back his son from Egypt. You guys see the connection? That's basically what he's doing for his audience. But Matthew's doing something even a little bit more interesting here. Because Hosea, this text with this name, it's attributed to a guy who is doing his work 700 years before Jesus was alive. And Hosea lived in the northern kingdom of the Israelites that was conquered by the Assyrians. And Hosea was convinced that this disaster was connected to the fact that God's people had been immoral and unjust and unfaithful. Which is why, in chapter 11 of that book, Hosea begins with God lamenting the people's choice to betray their relationship, to turn their back on the goodness of divine rule. And the prophet says this about what God had to say. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. And they sacrificed to the bales, and they burn incense to images. And I don't know if you could catch it right there in that text, but Hosea is actually depicting a scene from ancient Hebrew history where God's referring to the story of the Exodus, where God's people were brought out from Egypt. They're set free, they're given a new land, and yet they struggled to stay true to God when this happened. And God sort of responds and says, look, while you were young, I called you out of Egypt, and now you're throwing this gesture of kindness in my face by being unfaithful to me. Which means that Hosea is not making a prediction about the future and about Jesus. No, he's looking back in history, which begs the question then what's Matthew doing lifting this line out of this Hebrew prophet? And I don't want to get too caught up in the nitty-gritty of this, but one of the things that we think Matthew's doing is he's creating a typology of sorts, where in looking back at Hebrew history and looking back at Jesus' life, remember about 30 years after Jesus was alive, he started to see some similarities between the stories and saw some hints that maybe there was parallels between the life of Jesus and the great Hebrew deliverer Moses. See, in the book of Exodus, Moses flees a murderous king. And then comes back after he's found out that those who were seeking him had died. And then we see in the book of Matthew that Jesus flees a murderous king only to return when those who were seeking him had died. Now, whether or not Matthew's actually trying to do this thing, setting up Jesus as a new Moses, that might be interesting. But I think what's more pressing is the kind of holy remembering that Matthew models here. The kind of remembering that he invites us to as part of our Advent practice, perhaps. Because some of what Advent does for us is bring us back year after year to the same themes. And it can feel a little monotonous because in so many areas of our lives, when we have to repeat something, (laughs) we feel inferior. Like we've missed something, like why can't I get this? What am I doing wrong, we might ask ourselves, when we have to repeat But what Advent's invitation to us to cycle back to these stories and themes does is it makes space for us to do some holy remembering ourselves. Where yes, we make 
or we allow the stories of Christmas to be what they are, but maybe too we start to let go of the illusion that our story starts in one place and then moves in a straight line to another. And instead, like Matthew does in this story, we start to see where we are today and we realize that it parallels some place we've been before, even if there's no similarity between those two times in our lives. Let me give you an example. So maybe you've recently become aware of how a rhythm in your life right now stems from some difficulty that you experienced earlier in your story. There's, there's gift in that kind of awareness and remembering. Or maybe you've been noticing how your responses to sadness or grief or to a particular wound in your life, those things have been changing in you. Their power has been lessening perhaps. Or maybe you're aware today of divine goodness, that yes, surely things aren't perfect, we know that, but you can look back in your life and you can see how you've been gently sustained by this close eminence that's been around in your life. These are all forms of remembering, of cycling back, and they can become a source of holy life for us if we let them, where we're reminded that our story is not a mad rush to the end, so much as an invitation to be more awake and more alive and more present to God's nearness that's breaking through to us always. Now, back to the story for a moment here, because Matthew goes on to tell us that once Herod realized that the Magi were not cooperating with him, in fact, they'd gone to worship Jesus and they weren't coming back, the text tells us that Herod is furious, and he gives this order to kill all the boys in Bethlehem that were two years old and younger. And this was because he had heard some information from the Magi. And then what happens is that Matthew says that this action by Herod actually fulfills the words of a prophet named Jeremiah. And he quotes this text for us. And this is the text. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And to be honest, this story is a little bit of a rough one at this season. And it's one that the church actually commemorates in the Feast of the Holy Innocents, which is traditionally celebrated on December the 28th during Christmastide. And here in this story, Matthew provides us with a provoking Advent text in which the fragility of Jesus as a child is paralleled in the bodies and the cries of these boys. They're the small and they're the helpless and they're at the mercy of jealous and ambitious power. Because see, we know that this Herod guy was ruthless. Historians point to the fact that he was, he was super violent, so much so that he had his own wife and sons murdered because he was paranoid that they were trying to get rid of him. But then there's this, all, there's this crazy story about how he embodied the cruel self-centeredness of the powerful. He, he, wanted his, he wanted to be grieved when he died. He wanted everybody to be sad when he was gone. And so what he ordered is that a member of every family be killed when he passed away. And it's stories like this about this guy that gave the early church some of their impetus for the exaggerated numbers they came up with for how many boys were killed in Bethlehem here. 14,000 or 64,000 or even as high as 144,000. 
When in fact, archaeology and estimated or mortality rates at the time hinted the fact that given the area's population, the number may have only been about 20 or less. To which we might respond then, well, how many children need to be lost to the politics of power? And what's interesting is that here again, Matthew's exercising some creative imagination and interpretation with the text. See, this passage he's pulling from Jeremiah, it's not related at all to messianic prophecies when you look at it. It's actually this profoundly emotional image of Rachel, who is a matriarch in the Hebrew story, and she's imagined lying in her tomb at Ramah, which is this city about six miles north of Jerusalem. And she's weeping because she's watching God's people, her children as it were, being deported to Babylon. Their lives and their stories are being swept up in the gears of geopolitics. Their faces and names are being lost in the long line of those who are wrenched from their homes never to return. Which is why maybe this image can become a helpful Advent icon for us. Because at least in part, Matthew was using an image that was well known to his Jewish audience. And it's the image of the Hebrew people being deported to Babylon in the 6th century. And he's doing this to say, in effect, there is always sorrow to be grieved in the world. Always sorrow to be recognized and shared with each other. And Mary, or Mary, Matthew places this image in such, such close proximity to the Christmas story that I think it sometimes makes us uncomfortable. But I wonder if maybe that discomfort could be an instructor for us. Maybe we take the image of these children in Matthew 2 and we place it beside the image of a seven-year-old Jacqueline Call McKean, feverish and septic on the New Mexico border about two weeks ago. Many of you may have seen her story on the news. Or maybe we take the image and we place it beside somebody that we know. Maybe they lost their job in the downturn. Maybe they have suffered harassment in the workplace. Or maybe they're just suffering depression and anxiety that are actually impacting their professional performance. Or maybe we take the image and we hold it close to our story, to the innocence that we've lost, or to the powerlessness that we feel, the cruel shame that we feel over past failures. And what we do when we hold up icons like this is we invite ourselves into the womb of Advent's mystery, where Jacqueline's father weeping and the lonely tears of those we love and even our own choked emotions, they're joined with Rachel's cries in the text. This holy maternal grieving for the lost and the weak and the helpless. And maybe there we give ourselves permission to accept that all sorrow is in fact our sorrow. And that the pain of our experience is innately shared with others. And then, in Advent's darkness, we're given the room to mourn for as long as is necessary. And until the longing for justice and newness begins to form on our lips. Now, this brings us to the end of the story in Matthew where we learn 
that after Herod died, an angel lets Joseph know that he can go home with his family. And so that's what he does. The text tells us that Joseph heads north and ultimately settles in a town called Nazareth where we pick up the story with Jesus in the future. And with this, we see this realization of what Matthew was doing when he was using Hosea 11. Literally, Jesus is brought back from Egypt. And I already mentioned that maybe in recording this, Matthew's trying to do this thing here where he's saying, look at Jesus, look at Moses. Jesus might be a new deliverer, a new rescuer. But there's something else here that I want us to pay attention to. And that's the parental language that's used by Hosea and borrowed then by Matthew, the gospel writer. See, in Hosea, Yahweh is a parent, a mother or a father, and Israel is a child a child that needs to be rescued and cared for. And the truth is, is that this sort of parent-child language, it shows up all over the Hebrew Bible. The prophet, or prophet Jeremiah uses this imagery when God is seen saying, I will lead my children beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. We see Isaiah say, have God say, I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. Or in another place, we see the poet celebrate God's faithfulness with this beautiful image where they say, I've calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. I'm content there. Or where again, we see Isaiah use this image where we see God say, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. So when Matthew uses this image of a parent and a child, it's not foreign to his audience. The idea that God has done and will do much to care for these people. The point, though, is that he's doing more than using a powerful and known metaphor. Matthew's alluding to something at the core of Advent theology. Because all of a sudden, instead of Israel being the child in the story, being the one that's far from home, being the one in need of rescue, now it's Jesus taken to Egypt as a refugee. God self takes this place in the story. And this is a place in effect that we all occupy in our practice of Advent. And some of you might know what I'm talking about. It's that part of our lives and our history and our patterns that seems to exist in a state of always needing recovery. Of needing to come back home. And of needing to be set free. And, and maybe that's a startling image for us. And maybe all of this Christmas and Advent, it feels foreign to you. And maybe that's because you love the light and the warmth of Christmas. But, and these things can feel, these stories can feel a bit heavy. Or maybe it's because as we talk about candles and light in our liturgy, you feel more like an observer to these things as opposed to a participant in them. Or maybe these themes feel reminiscent of the sentimentality that you've been trying to get away from in Christmas. Regardless of the places that we come to Advent from, this text meets us there. We're in this depiction of what Warren Carter calls the endangerment of Jesus. His life is threatened, he's displaced, and he's forced into obscurity. And there, the power of entitled leaders lashes out at him, and the innocent and the weak are crushed. There, we catch an unexpected glimpse of what the incarnation actually depicts. 
where we don't just see God as a loving parent stepping in to save the day, but we find that in Jesus, God is the one in need of rescue, standing with us in our displaced places. And maybe for you, that's in a feeling that you are far from the person that you want to be. Or maybe it's the choices that you've made or others have made that have led you down a road that you would happily retrace. Or maybe it's just this quiet hope that comes that maybe in some small way change might come for you. Whatever the case, my prayer is that in this season you would come to trust that the divine will come. True to this image of God leaving the 99 to seek us all out. But that too you would discover the startling truth that wherever you stand and wait and long, Christ is there too with hope for things made new again. Let's pray together. God, you are present to us now in the grace of community gathered and in the mysterious ways that the scriptures come to us, even as they have today. And some of us may be stirred in this moment to practice holy remembering, where some part of our story, whether it's different from where we are right now, it, it's true that we can see it clearly today. And we ask that you would give us clarity not just this Advent, but in this Christmas season, to see and remember the ways that you have been near to us and that you'd give us grace to see new ways forward. Some of us might be aware of the images and the icons in our life right now. There's so much suffering in our world. There's so much longing and there's so much sorrow that we share, which is why we pray for peace and we pray for justice and we ask for comfort for heavy hearts beyond these walls, but maybe even for us here. The brokenness we carry, the shame we feel, this Advent, oh, infant Christ, be near. And teach us to trust that you stand with us in need. You stand with us in our places where we need deliverance, and I pray too that you would teach us that our longing for light, the longing we can feel even now as we look toward Christmas, we learn to see that as actually being sparked by your gentle spirit. Oh Christ, sustain us along the way we ask. Amen.